another episode of Talking Force. Adam, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I love what you guys are doing, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate it. And, and again, your story is very unique. And without, you know, me trying to list off kind of all the things that you've done, can you walk everybody kind of through, you know, how you got started into this? And particularly, you, you've really kind of been on a fast track your entire career um, through both basketball, into the biomechanics, into the professional, and then kind of beyond. And, and your research kind of speaks for itself, that it's very applied research. It's not the so what research that often drives me crazy. And so kind of how did you get into the kind of kind of lane that you're in now and kind of um, where are you at? Yeah, great question. You know, I, so I've been a coach on pretty much every level. So I started actually as a high school uh, basketball coach. So I coached uh, ninth grade basketball at John Carroll High School in Birmingham, Alabama. And I also did strength and conditioning for the entire department. And what I found is I, I really enjoyed the physical preparation aspects, probably more so than the tactical aspects of the X's and O's. Um, so from there, I went to a, a Division three college, um, Catholic University of, Amer of America in Washington, D.C. Um, that was a unique role, and it taught me a lot. I was working with men's basketball. Um, I was an assistant coach, but I was also director of strength and conditioning as well. So I was doing things like recruiting, scouting, um, you know, operations work, um, and running all the strength and conditioning. So it was kind of a unique insight to really give me an appreciation for what a director of basketball ops might do, what a tactical coach, technical coach might do on the basketball side, while still getting experience, uh, you know, in SNC in the world of like uh, physical preparation. Um, from there, I stayed in the DC area. I had the opportunity to, um, you know, be an assistant strength coach at uh, George Washington University. Um, working for a guy named Ben Kenyon. He's now with the Philadelphia 76ers, really good guy. That was my first exposure to like, you know, working in a division one weight room, you know, how, how to use Excel, how to program and periodize for the week, month, year. Uh, you know, he, he was super organized and had a great relationship with the student athletes. Um, so that was a great learning experience for me. Um, from GW, I went to University of Maryland um, as a basketball performance intern worked under Kyle Tarp. And that was really the first time I was exposed to, um, you know, what basketball performance was or could be, you know, he, he learned under Todd Wright from the University of Texas um, and just really integrated himself into the technical and tactical staff like seamlessly. So it was just a really good two years and two seasons of experience. Um, from there, I had the opportunity to go to the University of Arkansas. Um, I spent five years there. Uh, year one was an assistant. My last four years was the director of strength and conditioning for men's basketball. A lot of really good stuff happened there. Um, data collection for my PhD thesis occurred my uh, fifth year, my last year there. Um, got to interface with some really good athletes on campus. Um, the kinesiology department was great, built relationships up there. So we, we did a lot of like, you know, pilot studies and research. Um, just collaborating. Um, <clears throat> from, from there, I went from Arkansas to the Philadelphia 76ers, got a call. Um, and, and just basically, they were trying to build out, you know, um, you know, biomechanics and uh, like kind of like a, a internal research lab. So I had the opportunity to spend two years there. Um, from there, I was uh, director of performance at the Washington Wizards for a year. And now I'm back in the Philadelphia area uh, coaching track and field. So I'm assistant track and field coach and horizontal jumps coach. So I coached a long and triple jump 
at uh, Westchester University. And um, so during my time in Fayetteville at the University of Arkansas, I got exposed to a lot of post-collegiate sprinters and jumpers um, and just fell in love with speed power. So it's kind of fitting that, uh, you know, I get to come full circle and get to coach, uh, you know, a great sport like the long and triple jump. Yeah, it's pretty wild when you think about your journey because you, you've done the practical side of things. You've actually had to coach. So you have the uh, EQ experience because again, you're ultimately dealing with people, but you've also had some really, really heavy physics and, and data side of things. And I'd love to know how you blend that together. And particularly when you look at your research for your PhD and some of the profiling stuff, I don't think that gets enough attention. A lot of people are trying to fix things and do this and that and all sorts of wizardry, but there is a finite amount of gain potential in an individual. And there's also time. There's, there's windows of adaptation, there's windows of time. And I say that not just in the sense of reps and sets, but psychologically, chronologically, biologically, where all those things kind of have to line up. And oh, by the way, the individual also has to be very committed to the skill and the craft. And I'd love for you to kind of do a deep dive kind of into what did you find out specifically as it related to basketball mechanics? And on the profiling side, what did you find that was God-given and what was data-driven? and things that could be manipulated by staff? Yeah, no, that that's a great question. I, I think, you know, uh, the impetus behind all of the research that I've done, it, it always starts with a question, right? And the question early on when we started to integrate, uh, you know, kinetic profiling was like, we wanted just a, you know, a standardized and repeatable way to assess neuromuscular function, right? And how does that fluctuate throughout a training week, a training month, a training year? And is there any link between that and our training load that we're exposing our athletes to on a day-to-day -day basis? And in college basketball, match play demands, which occur about twice per seven days, right? In the NBA, it's about 3.5. Um, so the densities are a lot higher. But in college basketball, once you hit January 1st and you're in the conference play, you're usually playing either, you know, Wednesday, Saturday or Thursday, Sunday. So two per seven days. Um, so essentially what we found, what, what we did, is we did a repeat jump test on our force platform before and after every practice, right? So we did a high frequency hop um, and just looked at all of the kinetic metrics. And instead of having, uh, yes, sorry. Just real quick, when Pete, when you say high frequency hop, can you yes. just kind of break that down for them? Because I, I would think that most people listening understand a squat jump. They understand yeah. the counter movement with their hands on their hips or a dowel, and then they know with arm swing. But if you could kind of just really like parse out specifically what you were doing and then the protocol for that because I, i'm finding more and more individuals will do a high frequency hop mm -hmm. but it's their version and it's their permutation and derivative and mm -hmm. so it makes it really hard to intercompare between the research so specifically as it related to the stuff that you did pre and post practice what, what were the standards and mechanics of that yeah so it was just a, a hands-on hip repeat jump test where the athlete has minimal flexion in their knees and hips and is instructed to get off the plate as quickly as possible so a low frequency hop would be as high and as quick as possible a high frequency hop would just be as quickly as possible so you're really trying to um look at like stiffness and ground contact times as a measure of potential neuromuscular readiness or fatigue um, so, so we did that prior to and post every practice just to make it standardized and repeatable. And instead of having like a, a, a fatiguing protocol, like you see in most studies, we just used our practices as that and just looked at how different volumes and intensities of practice, um, you know, manipulated neuromuscular fatigue and the effect size from pre to post. Um, and after doing that for an entire season, 
um, we started to find uh, a lot of trends within our athletes. Uh, the first one is this idea of preparedness versus readiness, right? So when we looked at the season of the whole, as a whole in the, the chronicity of a season, um, a lot of the absolute metrics, your jump height and your peak force, were very stable, right? In, in a, I think in a acute fatigue state, you can kind of jump high or jump very powerful relative to what your normative values are, even though you're fatigued, right? So when you look at, you know, early in the season versus later in the season, there was a gradual decline in peak force and jump height. However, it was very stable on a day-to-day. -day. So even after a hard practice, right? Um, let's say, we, you know, we typically practice 65 minutes and we practice 95 minutes. So the volume and intensity was up. You could still hit ranges within like five to 10% of your peak force and your jump height where it normally is. But um, when we, we look at this idea of readiness in an acute state, and when you look at the effect size and you look at, you know, maybe like an impulse or a reactive strength index or the ratio of flight to contact time, um, those were very unstable, right? So what we found was that uniformly throughout the training week, um, neuromuscular fatigue was more readily teased out from temporal metrics, right? So like your RSI and your impulse, where when you look at the chronicity of a season as a whole, your peak value, such as peak force or relative peak power or whatever you're looking at is more stable. But if you want longitudinal changes over time, are our athletes progressing preseason to postseason? Those were more stable values, but they're going to give a picture of preparedness or where your athletes are going um, through, throughout the course of a season, right? So, for example, an athlete comes in and a coach wants to know, where is this athlete at today? I'm probably going to use RSI. I'm probably going to use impulse. Um, I'm probably going to use more of a timing-based metric, a temporal metric. Coach comes to me, says, are our athletes getting stronger? Are they more powerful? Are they more uh, forceful? Well, I'm probably going to use peak values, relative peak power, peak force, thing, things of that nature, because it's more of a stable metric, right? Um, so that, that was one thing. The, the other thing we looked at is we wanted to compare game demands, right? So what we also found, match day minus one, right, or 24 hours prior to the game, prior to competition, we would test. Uh, same, same thing, standardized repeatable, same methodologies. And what we found from running the data against our spatial tracking cameras in our arena that just get X and Y coordinates, you get distance and speed, uh, X cells, D cells, peak speed. What we found is that uniformly um, relative to individual norms and normative data, that reactive strength index uh, match day minus one was also correlated with in-game peak speed. So when RSI went up the day before a game, so did the individual's peak speed relative to their normative values, right? So again, when you're talking about this state of neuromuscular readiness or acute readiness, maybe RSI or some of your temporal values are a better state of where that athlete is in that snapshot in that, that current state of time. So what we wanna look at in the future is look at maybe an intervention study, like how can you facilitate this, um, you know, uh, short ground contact times, high flight times uh, to facilitate some of those reactive strength type qualities as close to the game as possible. And I think that there's a lot that can be said for that because you, you mentioned you're looking at it at the professional level. I know even little things such as the CBA directly impacts what your intervention can be. So you're kind of 
holding on to what that was done either in the high school or the college, and specifically as it relates to basketball, you could have an 18-year-old or a 21-year-old next to a 30-year-old. So those demands and those windows of time for making change um, are certainly different, and they also come at a cost. And, I, and I'd love to hear, you know, kind of with your next thing about player development, what did you find in the profiles that were the things that you could do to make someone more productive? And, and I'll, I'll switch it up to say, I love how you compared the peak values for are we getting better, but then that was kind of like day-to-day -day, uh, or day, you know, game day um, metrics. What were the things that really pushed productivity to the point of where, yes, there was a noticeable difference from the G League players to the, you know, starters or from high school to college that was able to be trained by the staff? Yeah, no, I think, you know, chronological age is a good point, right? Where like your older athletes, again, were more stable or more consistent with their outputs over time, where your younger athletes, and we even saw this on the collegiate level in a four-year window or five, just depending if it's a transfer or redshirt, where uh, younger athletes did fluctuate more through the training week than some of our older athletes. That was ex exponentially magnified when you get on the pro level, like you said, where you could have a 19-year-old or you could have a 33-year-old. So we, we knew um, things like back-to-back -back games, travel, um, you know, home versus road, that our older athletes, for whatever reason, were probably a little more robust, had a greater training age, and were able to cope with those stressors more so than our younger athletes. As it relates to interventions, right? Um, and just letting the scientific process do what it does, I can tell you, I have a hypothesis of what I think I know, but I don't know for certain. So we Let's haven't- go. We, we gotta hear it. What do we got? We, Let's hear it. We haven't done those studies yet, but but again, I, I do think it, it goes back to, you know, specific adaptations to impose demands and being very simple. I think uh, with your peak values, right? I mean, if you just lift at a high intensity, right? Squats, deads, hex bar, low box step ups, anything that requires a lot of intensity is probably going to increase those peak values. Um, sprinting, jumping, plyometrics, explosive med ball throws on the other end of the spectrum is probably going to improve those temporal qualities, right? So I, I, I think we know enough to say that it is true at this point, right? But I haven't personally studied that in a peer-reviewed setting, right? So that the intervention process is something that we're looking for in the future now with our current cohort of athletes, but I cannot tell you for certain with my own research that that is the case. Yeah, I know that there's uh, a lot of stuff that's been done about looking at the heavier loads and not necessarily the volume, but the exposures to heavy loads on the ligaments, on the tendons. And so you basically within, I think it was a twin study where they looked at the type of the matrix of the collagen. And so for all intents and purposes, a simple way to say is there's good tendons and there's bad tendons. There's tendons that are more advantageous to concentric work, and then there's tendons that are a little bit more robust. And it'd be really interesting to be able to look at somebody, you know, short of a biopsy and be able to say, okay, this is the current state. This is what we can train you to. Because again, whether it's the right, right position or the right sport, there's certainly things where profiles can really lend themselves to be favorable or ultimately the limiting factor. And again, that's the great struggle of you may want to do it, but will your body let you at those levels that you mentioned of back-to-back -back games or super long seasons. And so when we think of the career of an athlete, there are some limiting factors as well as factors that can, you know, give you production and opportunity. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. So I, I do think um, this idea of neuromuscular and kinetic profiling is something that's, you know, um, essential to any athlete at any population. And now 
that I'm currently working with track and field, right? It, it's very interesting to see different demands, right? So, you know, you look at our micro cycles, we only compete once a week, right? On a, a normal week, um, you know, so the densities of competition are much more spaced out. However, you look at an event like the triple jump, I mean, there's certain biomechanical models that suggest that triple jumpers in their transition from first to second phase are producing forces up to 12 times body weight on a single leg, right? So the residual fatigue from that event is probably going to be much greater than just playing a basketball game if you play 20 minutes, right? So uh, looking at that fluctuations throughout the training week, we're also doing um, a, a kinetic profile measure uh, currently with our track and field cohort, where it's just looking at what metrics are specific to what event groups, right? So throughout a track and field roster, you have your sprints, your jumps, your throws, your distance, all very different body types, all very, very different demands. So we're just kind of taking the aggregate and the averages of each group and just looking, you know, through maybe like a principal component analysis or different uh, statistical analysis to see what metrics from the force platform are specific to each group. And again, don't know yet, still going through preliminary data collection. However, I do have a hypothesis on uh, certain things at this point. Well, I'd love for you to share them. And, and, I, and I also, you know, think it's interesting that yes, you've done peer reviewed studies, but you kind of sound like, you know, as a coach, you're doing your own studies in your lab. I remember Charles Poliquin talking about, you know, the lab being the weight room. And I think there's certain rules of research that always, you know, it's got to be, you know, valid, it's got to be accurate, it's got to, you know, have all those elements of scientific method. Could you kind of give a little outline or a paradigm? So if a listener's out there, and they're like, you know what, I've got plates, I've got students, I've got athletes, I want to start to collect information, I'll just something simple, such as, you know, if we're testing before the games, then we should test before the games, you can't use data from three days after. And so kind of that validity type stuff. Um, what what would be the framework if, if you had just a coach, doesn't have a PhD, you know, doesn't have a master's, just kind of looking to collect data, what's a methodology that would allow them to kind of do these own their own little kind of exploratory searches? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, you just have to be standardized and repeatable in how you collect the data, right? Just make sure it's the same way every time. If you're if you're going to do free arm swing, that's fine. If that's like the methodology you want, you feel like it's, you know, more more game specific or for whatever reason, just make sure it's the same way every time. If you're going to, you know, test pre-practice, right? Because you feel like that's the state where they're most ready, uh, then do that each time. If you're going to do it post-practice, right? Make, make sure you record volume and intensity of practices and just do it the same way each time. Um, so what, what, what we're currently doing right now is, um, you know, so we have a, a dual force plate set up through, through Hawkins. Um, and it's honestly for insight to evaluation, we just pull it track side. It's all, all wireless and uploads to the cloud. And we just have it right there on the track. And all uh, 70 men's and women's athletes uh, from both teams uh, test pretty much every day. So our jumpers and sprinters test every day. Our distance crew and our throws test twice a week, same time each week. Um, and it's just hands on hips. We do one counter movement jump. We do a counter movement rebound jump and we do a uh, multiple uh, like a pogo type jump. And we do that every single day prior to practice before the warm up. So um, we do a little like lunge and jump variation before they get into their actual warm up for their practice. 
Uh, again, just being standardized and repeatable in how we collect the data, we have it right there trackside. Uh, the plates actually go to away competitions. So we've got a really robust uh, data set. And like I said, I get excited about maybe my questions or my hypothesis, but if your data collection isn't solid in, in how it's standardized and repeatable, or is it the same way each time and how you do it, then it doesn't matter what your questions are, or what the peer review process is, it's just not a good data set. So um, the first thing we wanted to do in this outdoor season is just do it every day, make sure, you know, depth over width and what we could do, um, and just do it the same way every time. Yeah, I think a lot, I've heard people say, well, it's close enough, it's good enough. And, and yeah. if you're going to go down the rabbit hole of data, Mm -hmm. then you need to be accurate and precise because the only thing worse than not having data is having trash. And right. so whether it's user error, whether it's equipment error, you know, you mentioned, you know, you can take the stuff outside. Well, make sure you don't put it on a gravel or a slanted surface or that you know where it's at, that you tag it so that you can keep track of it and all these kind of things because that is something that, you know, force plates 20 years ago couldn't be thrown in a car and taken with you. And so there has to be a maturation to the profession as much as the technology. And it has to go hand in hand. And I think that, you know, knowing what questions to ask before you start considering data as gospel is super important because again, you're going to hang your hat on this or you're gonna make decisions for an athlete. You really need to make sure that the, the information you're working off of is solid. And, and I think that uh, you bring up so many good points on not only how you've implemented it, how you've applied it, but kind of the ethos behind that collection as well. Yeah, absolutely. Or even something simple, did you zero the plates? Are they calibrated correctly? I mean, that's a, you know, it's a little thing, but it's also just a big thing. Yeah, and you mentioned surface, right? Do you do it on the Mondo or do you do it on the concrete? Is the concrete leveled if you are using concrete, just so there's not a lot of noise and static within the data? So yeah, absolutely. I think, um, so currently what we're focused on is just being standardized and repeatable and how we collect the data and our methodologies behind that. What's the biggest thing that you've seen transferred from the NBA experience that you've had? And, and really, you know, I got a chance to look at your book and breaking down the biomechanics. And obviously, I think something like a sport like basketball in the last call it 20 or 30 years has seen a massive change in the profile, specifically in length, speeds, velocities, release angles, all that kind of stuff. There's been massive change. Has there been the same change in track and field or was that something that was already a little um, a little more matured as far as getting to that end state of the upper human limit. I know Usain Bolt is a great example of someone who just beat that 100, but I think of, when I think of the two different sports, and, and maybe I'm wrong, is that every sport has its own evolution that it's going through as it relates to money, to competition, to being a global sport versus a regional sport. What, what are some of the similarities or differences that you've seen between your NBA study and your, your work with track and field? Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. Well, it, you know, if you look at, you know, the world records currently as they stand, uh, it's uh, Mike Powell in the long and Jonathan Edwards in the triple. And both of those were set respectively in the early 90s, right? So, I mean, it's been, you know, 30 plus years since, you know, those world records have been broken. So when, when you look at the sport as a whole, I, I think, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, maybe it, it has hit a wall, although we do have some super talented, you know, jumpers and sprinters. I think, you know, 958 in 1919, what Bolt did in Berlin in 2009, um, those might stand for a little while. But, you know, there's this young kid out of Florida 
that's breaking all of Bolt's records at the U20 level. So every time you think, oh man, 1919, that's going to stand the test of time forever. There's always a, you know, another young buck that comes along. I think what we can say within pro basketball is length relative to height is a principal component as it relates to performance. So athletes are just getting longer. They're getting taller, uh, lean muscle mass as well. So when you look at the archetype of, uh, you know, the 1990s NBA athlete, they, they were, you know, muscular for the most part, but like you, you see less and less guys built like a Reggie Miller body type or, you know, very, very slender. Um, you know, you're getting kind of like your Giannis types, your Joel Embiid, your uh, Jokic, th those types of uh, players where they're hybrid in nature, right? Where they can face up to the basket and are skilled, but have the body of your traditional big. So I, I think um, the evolution of the three-point shot and like the emphasis on that as far as spacing, um, particularly like offensively, has kind of changed the game and the archetype of what the NBA athlete looks like. Yeah, I think there's definitely been a push towards more meso than not. I think, as you mentioned, yeah. the length, the height. I mean, we would talk about all the time that we knew for a fact defensive players in the sport of football had to have a plus wingspan. And okay. an average man, if you look back at the Da Vinci's man, you know, of, uh, you know, height equals wingspan. Yeah. I mean, we were we were we were closer to six to seven to even some kids were eight, nine inches longer than they were tall. And so and I always wondered, length never gets tired. So is that because you're cutting down lanes and cutting off passing routes or windows of opportunity? Or I know working with some of the other researchers talking that there's an unloading component of agility. So when you swing your arms and you deload, it's like taking a weight vest off every time you change direction. So that could be pretty interesting. And and without question, our longer defenders were more productive. And even if they weren't as skilled, they were more resilient. And as you mentioned, muscle, we know for a fact, you know, that's a shock absorber. So muscle can take the load or something else can, and something can remodel in a couple, you know, hours or a couple of days and, and other things, you know, you need to have an ACL surgery. So I think those are really interesting points, especially um, as it relates to giving that space because the hoop's not going higher. Right. So to stretch the game out, you have to go further back. And I think it's been interesting to see what that's done. And I would credit a lot of that to the analytics um, game, being able to figure out how to manipulate that sport. Yeah, absolutely. I do think um, length does not get tired. I, I like that. I'll, I'll have to uh, take that one from you, <laughs> but obviously give you credit. But, yeah, I do think, you know, being economical relative to the tactical aspects of the sport is also another important uh, component. Like when we when we did our review of just game demands and training load within basketball across pretty much every league continentally in the world. Right. The top athletes move the less but had the capacity to move at the fastest speed. Right. So when you look at total distance, uh, you know, when you play against guys like Kawhi or LeBron or Steph Curry, um, watch them without the ball. They're not moving very much, but when they do know where to be and when to be there, they attack at a very high velocity, right? So your total distance will be significantly lower and you're more elite athletes, but your peak speed will be greater or your distance at high speed. So I think being economical relative to the tactical aspects of the game, principal component to success within the sporting activity of basketball, also length, like you know, from a mechanical standpoint, like you just have the greater potential to create bigger lever systems and bigger moment arms, right? So if you are Giannis and you have a seven, six wingspan and you're coming down the court, 
Um, those are some huge moment arms. So the ability to produce angular velocity at those links is uh, going to have a greater capacity as well, right? So it's just, I guess, I guess going back to the, the physics aspect of the game, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's something you can argue with. Do you think that applies across multiple sports? As you're talking, I'm thinking about field hockey, I'm thinking about lacrosse, thinking about yeah. soccer, where, and again, I think, again, of the length and the height, is that something that we would see across the board, that there's an optimal kind of height window, and then there's also an optimal strategy of that they're slow, but then they can attack at high velocity, so their total net volume is, is lower in distance, but their peak speeds, and so maybe that plays into the account of what's focused on in the weight room of, can you even hit those peak velocities without a tactical sense? And then also from a coaching standpoint, are they just constantly running around gassing themselves out? Yeah, I do think you can kind of recruit towards body types, right? Uh, even even in the horizontal jumps, uh, you know, one of my mentors would always say coach towards the body type. And if you look at how a certain athletes run in those events in the long and triple, you could say, okay, if your, you know, approach velocities and flight to contact times and projection angles are like this, you're probably going to jump at the board this way. Or if it's like that, you're going to jump that way, right? And a lot of that just has to do with lever length and moment arms, right? Like the longer you are and the taller you are the greater moment or potential for moment arms you have so you're probably going to set up your approach a certain way you're probably going to set up your penultimate a certain way your projection angles off the board are going to be a certain way right um not to say that you can't be a super successful like long or triple jumper if you're short and stocky however if you look at the body types across you know world championships and olympics like they're usually going to be you know, longer, more elastic type athletes. Yeah, I know oftentimes with the elasticity, that's that that uh, yin and yang, because mm -hmm. you can be elastic because you have this potential to use your nervous system to bounce out of things. Um, but again, the durability on that is something that has to be closely monitored. And, and I didn't know if you have any strategies on that, because I know we've spoken to customers time and time again talking about, okay, you have productivity metrics and then you have, you know, strategy metrics and some strategies are okay for a short term. Um, but just like the thickness of a brake pad or the tread on a tire, if you choose to use that strategy, one, you need to know how long you're going to do it for, and then also back off. And that's classical periodization, right? Like knowing when to not overtrain, but now to be able to see it with such high fidelity and on such depth and level, um, I think it's something that, you know, as much as it's an art, it is a science as well. For sure. And, and the thing in an acutely fatigued state, certain biomotor abilities are going to uh, drop off at different time courses, right? So we've all seen like the, the old chart of like time course and adaptation. Well, in, in a fatigue state, I think it's true. Like you, when you're looking at fatigues, particularly within like a cyclical sport, like track and field, what we typically see in a fatigue state is that uh, your refined like coordination and motor ability is going to be the first thing that's off, right? Like if you're not hitting the board where you normally do, if your steps are off, if you have to back up or move up relative to the board, that's usually the first thing to go. Second thing to go is like elasticity and coordination, um, <clears throat> or excuse me, elasticity, uh, like you mentioned. So maybe your flight to contact time's off, maybe your penultimate, like you're dampening too much, right? So you're lowering too much on your penultimate. That's usually the second thing to go. And just uh, raw, like power is probably gonna be the last thing to go in a fashion. So let's say on uh, Saturday we jump triple, right? 
well, Monday, they're not going to be coordinated. Maybe uh, Tuesday, they're not going to be elastic. And maybe Wednesday, they're not going to be powerful, right? Because they all fatigue or degradate in like, um, like a different time course, right? So when you're laying out your menu items for the week, you have to take into consideration if you're just looking at raw power on your standardized repeatable neuromuscular assessment, you might catch it too late, right? So there might be some better, um, you know, metrics or qualities if you're looking at, again, going back to acute neuromuscular readiness that you can look at, that if they're dropping off relative to their individual norms, that they may be fatigued or not ready to jump for that day, right? Yeah, I know we, we were fortunate enough to have Bill Kramer work with us when I was at Yale with oh, the um, flexible nonlinear programming. And he was he was so adamant about that kind of pre preseason baseline of that is your ideally your best in and around before the start of competition. But that fluctuation in power of 100 to 95 was a real thing. And then within that, there was buckets of things to look at. So you looked at the subsystems as it related to there. And then if you were at 90 to 95, something is definitely going on. And so your original course of action in the ideal state needed to be evaluated. And if someone's power dropped 10%, that is massive. That was the big red light of stop. An intervention needs to happen. A change in training needs to happen. And I'd be curious to see, you know, if you had a magic wand kind of thinking along those lines, I love how you kind of broke out the cascades. What would be additional metrics that you would be looking at within that top tier bucket? of that kind of someone comes in and he, he would also talk about asking the psychological state, right? Like someone can come in and be like, I'm complete trash and set a PR doesn't mean that that's that day you should go into a max out. Conversely, if they feel great, but their numbers at 89 and, and again, an 11% change in power, something catastrophic has happened. What would you do or what additional metrics would you pull up? So you have your, say, looking at kind of power, as you mentioned, that bottom state, what would be those elastic or these neuromuscular things that you would bucket and bracket out as well? Yeah. So I think, I think stiffness as it relates to jumping and spreading is super, um, super important, right? We also know that it's probably going to fluctuate more so than like power and some of your absolute metrics. So I think that's a good one to kind of tease out. Um, if you're doing like a, uh, like a repeat type jump, I think uh, reactive strength index is another one, right? So just ratio of flight to contact time. I think those two, as it relates to jumps and sprints, are A, going to be key performance indicators, right? So your fastest athletes and your best jumpers are probably going to exceed relative to their peers at those two metrics. But uh, it's also two metrics that fluctuate at a high rate. So they're sensitive to neuromuscular fatigue in an acute state. So that's why we do three different jumps with all of our cohort of athletes to see if we can't tease out something from the counter movement, something from the rebound and something from, um, you know, the, the multiple jump. Uh, I think, and anecdotally, I haven't like uh, really studied this in a peer review setting, but stiffness and reactive strength are two um, very, very good metrics because they're key performance indicators for your best athletes. And they're also sensitive to acute neuromuscular fatigue, right? How would you go about applying that in the setting of, you know, we work with say a, a football team as 120 individuals, or you work with an army battalion, or you work with something like that in mass, what would be the strategy or the roadmap to be able to go and apply that same methodology? You mentioned three things. Would you do three things or would you do one for everybody? And then if this, then that, 
create a cascade of additional testing? What, what's the just the? I'm just talking straight logistics. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, so so uh, when we test our whole roster, that's about 70 athletes, right? And we just have it there trackside. I think you know Hawkins does give you the capacity to do all three, I believe, right? Because it's very user friendly. The interface between um, hardware software is you know probably the best I've used up to this point for the study we're currently doing. So I, I think if you can do multiple tests, do it. But again, if I am always depth over width. So instead of doing three tests once a week, I'd rather do one test every day. So if all you can get is a counter movement, get a counter movement every single day. Would you then, if the counter movement was off, have a subsequent set of tests to run or would you have a different day? So counter movement Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or these other tests Tuesday, Thursday, or how would you break that out? I would honestly, like if you have touch points on your athlete every day, I would do it every day. Yeah. We've had some individuals start testing pre and post practice. And mm -hmm. it's been interesting that they're like, I thought this was an easy practice. And as you yeah. mentioned to the older uh, athletes that have a greater training density, the practice was fine. You don't really see much change. And then you can look at a first year or someone who's not of the same training age, even if biologically or chronologically, they're the, the same, you know, 18, 19 get absolutely destroyed. And then the subsequent day, they're still destroyed because either they didn't take care of themselves or really the training load was that high. And that's been really interesting of just, as you mentioned, that kind of depth, just keep making sure that you're having one consistent metric. Because right now, there's so many things you can do. It's almost a problem. I could do this. I could do this. Well, you did a lot of bit of nothing. You didn't measure consistently enough to get a good sample size or a length of time. But picking that one metric to be consistent with is so important. Yeah, no, I think. Um... Yeah, I think it goes back to your question. What question are you trying to answer by the test, right? And if that is just an acute state of readiness or neuromuscular fatigue, you know, doing something every day and having great depth to what you're doing is probably the most important thing, right? So yeah, I, I, I think the pre versus post was very helpful in my time in collegiate basketball. Um, also get, get uh, good interns and assistants would also be uh, a suggestion I would have to, to your previous question of how are you going to do a whole football team or how are you going to do, you know, tactical athletes? And, and I just think that, you know, you ask, what are you looking for? I'm just going to throw it out to you. We'll play customer service. Hey, I just took over a team. We're not very good. Our coach isn't happy. We want to win a championship. Where do I start? What would be your baseline protocol? If you were, you know, coming in to consult with a team and you basically had to say, okay, we're at ground zero. You know, you've just got your technology. You, you've got your athletes that want to get better. You have the coach who's super motivated to make a change. What would be kind of the paradigm that you would set up for that situation? Yeah, no, that that's a good question. I think, A, building relationships, right? So with the, with the technical, tactical staff and with the athletes, like you got to have that relationship to create the buy-in of what you're doing. Um, B, it's just like, again, like what questions are you trying to answer? Everybody's trying to win a championship. Uh, everybody's trying to increase performance, decrease injury risk. So uh, again, I think starting with a good question and say, hey, we want to know, are our athletes getting better or are they ready for competition or training? All right. Well, okay. You know, you could do that through force platform analysis. I would start really simple. Um, get a system that's easy to interface with because like if you get a really complicated system that, you know, let's say you need, you know, markers or let's say there's a lot of post-processing, well, that's not good in an environment where you're just taking over, right? So that interface between hardware and software and user um, and, and tester have to be like kind of seamless, right? 
Um, and just do hands on hips, counter movement, jump, do it every day. Um, it's probably not necessarily, I guess, the gold standard, but it's been researched the most within the literature. Um, so there's a lot to pull from and just do it with a, again, standardized repeatable protocol and do it with a high rate of consistency. And you'll start to build a profile and you'll start to kind of build a picture of where each athlete may be, um, you know, fatigues and where, you know, you feel like certain athletes are fit. And then you can kind of start bucketing different athletes into different categories. Yeah, I like how you said there with bucketing, it's so important because oftentimes it's not what other people have done. Your situation is very unique to you and to the athletes you have. So starting off with that very simple, as you mentioned, hands on hips, there's so many things you can do, but it's better than not doing, you know, you know, not doing anything. And then you're going to evolve. And I think that's so important that people understand that just like an athlete will evolve and develop, so will a program, so will the buy-in, so will the understanding and the implications, specifically as it relates to the athlete, as they start having greater attention to detail or greater buy-in, it suddenly means something. And it's a common language across both the coach, the athletic trainer, the strength coach, and the athlete. So it really has merit. Because if you don't train with purpose and intent, then most of your training is irrelevant. And so that's where we always caution people is that, yes, you could do all these flashy things, but what can you do consistently and repeatedly? But then let's add a little bit more. Let's add a little bit more. And you know what? What we did in, in year one, we may trim some things back because we've progressed as a program. And I think it's so important that you do that because anytime you have a new language, you drive action. And we had Tofi Zimnicki on um, a couple podcasts ago, and he talked about the best thing with data, good data drives conversation. So if you've got metrics that nobody understands except for the person that collected it, that's not a very good language. And I would love to hear, as you mentioned at the college, the professional and, and um, track and field uh, college level, how did you shepherd that data and that information? Because the other thing too, as you've alluded to, you can start to see some of the warning signs pretty early but you couldn't be the one to go run over and say, hey, you know, the strength coach isn't doing his job or athletic training is not doing their job or you can start having that this data now becomes something that, you know, becomes fearful because uh, becomes a compliance thing. Hey, why is your vert down? Is it because you're not sleeping and recovering and you really don't want data to ever become toxic. So what was your strategy that you used about bringing this data into the kind of ecosystem and making sure it was used to its full potential? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think you brought up a really good point of maybe year one will look different than year two compared to year three. The worst thing you can do when taking over a new program is try to change too much at once, right? That's a mistake I, I see a lot in younger practitioners is like purchase a lot of tech. We're going to implement everything at once right away instead of maybe implementing one thing, mastering that integrate it into the ecosystem and the environment and then add something else once it's kind of seamless. Um, so I think that's a, a, an important component. The other thing I see is, again, we've talked a lot about what, what is your research question or what questions are you trying to answer by the uh, integration of technology? Um, a lot of practitioners I see are trying to answer questions that no one's asking, like the athletes aren't asking, the coaches aren't asking. So they're force feeding these reports and these charts and graphs that may look cool, but um, no one's really seeking those types of answers, right? So I think not trying to change too much at once and then make sure that everyone is asking the questions that you're seeking answers for, technical, tactical staff, but most importantly, particularly in professional sports is 
the athletes are the key key stakeholders in that, right? So uh, make sure that they're on board and you have those relationships and you can interface um, with multiple departments to kind of get your point across. And, and let them know too that like, just cause like your jump heights down just a little bit, it's not the end of the world. It's just like, we don't want it to consistently go down over a long period of time where it's gonna affect your on court, on field, on track performance, right? So I think there's an educational piece to that as well. I would always laugh with athletes when they would, you know, panic about the one metric, looking at it myopically. I said, do you freak out when your check engine light goes on? Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, no. Right. But what you would do is you would bring it to the mechanic. You would take a look. And sometimes it's just a bad fuse. Sometimes it's a, you know, a sensor, it, you know, or it could be something. And but, you know, the beauty of data is that you can see these things before they become multi-week or acute, you know, failure state problems but do something about it. And, and I would also ask that, you know, especially we've seen the evolution of the industry as it relates to sports science and data and strength and conditioning and, and these different stakeholders, where do you see the field going? Is it that it continues to fracture or is now the data scientist gonna becoming, you know, just as common as today, you know, we think strength coach and we think athletic trainer. Is the data scientist gonna play that role or are strength coaches going to have to develop or how does that work because when I think of some of the stuff that I'm seeing now, it's very research. Like you didn't have force plates at courtside. You just didn't have that 20 years ago. But now if you don't have it, are you really trying? Are you trying to be competitive? Because we know that information is so important. We know that nutrition is so important when it comes to hydration. We know, uh, you know, recovery strategies, all these different things. So if you're really trying to be at the top of your game, you're going to have to evolve over the times. But I'd love to hear because you've done all aspects of this what do you foresee kind of in the five-year 10-year forecast of the industry where this thing's headed yeah that that's a great question i think um you know it is evolving rapidly and i do think you know your your traditional like okay we're just going to lift weights and run and jump and hopefully things work out um i i don't think that is going to be the gold standard right where it once was um i do think the pendulum might swing i think it's a uh, Two, two components. You're going to have to interface with technology, uh, you know, to a certain degree, right? But I don't think the data scientist is going to be somebody at the forefront of organizations or the forefront of like power five universities. I think it's a piece and a component that can utilize, be utilized to like a coach's advantage. But I don't think they're going to be the person like driving the questions and driving success. I, I still think it's a a multidisciplinary uh, group and unit. And it comes back to relationships with the coaches, relationships with the athlete, relationships with the front office. Um, so I think it's multifactorial where yes, like data science and integration of technology is gonna be like a big component moving forward in the field of sport performance. However, like you can't just be some guy on your computer and expect everybody just to blindly trust what you're saying. So I think you kind of have to have both skill sets to seamlessly interface with the sport ecosystem. No doubt. And I, and I just tell everyone all the time, no matter how much technology, it's still a people business. It's still a, real, a relationship business. And we're just giving you new language. We're giving you new tools to have that relationship. So that should always be kind of at the forefront of any organization as they're adding this stuff. That being said, kind of as we kind of close out here, you, you've done a lot, you've seen a lot, you've had a wild kind of ride 
what are the biggest aha moments that you've had that you would go back in time and tell yourself, hey, you know, you may not think this is important, but you know, Adam of the future is going to tell you this, or you know what, here's something I thought that was super important early on that's really not as important. What were your biggest breakthrough aha moments, both as a you know professional and then also on a personal level? Uh, I would say probably two. The first one, uh, as a as a practitioner early in my career, I purchased every single technology like you could, like sleep bands and you know mocap and everything you could imagine, heart rate, GPS um accelerometry uh you know applications for wellness and you know where it's on the ipad and they just click it and we kind of built that out and you know ultimately it failed just because like i didn't establish what questions i was trying to answer by you know purchasing all this technology and what we came up with is just hey ask the athletes how they feel and just get them jump on the force plate every day and that was like our best uh, methodology for um you know, neuromuscular readiness, and then our interface with the technical and tactical staff. And we just use duration <laughs> of uh, training as like, um, as how we communicated. And that that was because, you know, three years in my head coach, like I had all these cool, you know, red, yellow, and green reports of high intensity X cells and D cells, total distance, um, you know, proprietary load algorithms and things like that. And he was just like, well, I just really want to know how long I went and I want to know how long we scrimmaged. So his periods is 5v5 full court. And that's what we used as our uh, load, load monitoring. So, I mean, it would, it would have saved me three years of anguish and uh, kind of banging my head against the wall if I would have started just asking a question like, what do you want to see? So I think um, that that's one. Um, the other, I would say from a personal standpoint, is like make time for things outside of like your craft, right? Um, so like time with family time with, uh, you know, your loved ones, you know, early in my career, I, I thought, you know, I'd walk in to the, to the facility at six and leave at like seven and, uh, AM to PM. And I thought that was just the norm, but now that I have kids, I have a wife, um, finding that kind of work-life balance is really important for sustainability over time, you know, particularly when you have a lot of travel, there's a high frequency of games. It's uh, like a high stress environment. So finding a kind of a balance where you get time with your family and get time with your loved ones is really important for like sustainability over a long period of time. Well, awesome. I mean, I can't thank you enough. I've, I've learned so much and I have even more questions. So we'll have to circle back after, yeah, yeah. after this call, but um, certainly great to have you on the show. Um, for those that are listening that want to reach out, they have additional questions. We always want to try to give them a way to contact our speakers. What what would be the best way for someone to get a hold of you? Yeah, just uh, if any follow up questions that the the listeners have, just email me. It's just my name, Adam Petway at gmail dot com, and uh, yeah, I'll get back to them. It maybe may take a couple of days, but I'll definitely get back. Awesome. Well, Adam, thank you so much. And we'll have to definitely get you back on here as it kicks off this summer. So thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Everyone, thank you for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.